Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We have a great episode for you today. I'm talking to three women who have written films as part of RTE's new Storyland initiative, which aims to highlight and showcase new local drama. You know, we are female Irish writers that want to write for screen. You know, a lot of us, you see a lot of female Irish writers, screenwriters in particular, who've gone to the UK or, you know, who have left these shores. Um, and to see our national broadcaster kind of back us and encourage us to write stories for Irish television was um, was just really inspiring and really encouraging for me. Before that, I just want to mention the depressing continuing news that women are being psychologically damaged and hospital staff are being intimidated and threatened by anti-abortion protesters who are holding demonstrations outside some maternity hospitals on a daily basis, according to the HSE. And the HSE has warned that access to abortion is vulnerable in areas where healthcare workers are threatened, harassed or subjected to intimidating behaviours. It's said that activists are sometimes aggressive and often use graphic pictures of fetuses as well as religious imagery. And the HSE has welcomed an upcoming bill that would ban anti-abortion demonstrations within 100 metres of any healthcare facility that can provide termination of pregnancy services, not only those that currently do. The so-called safe access zone law would be designed to protect both women and medical staff from intimidation or harassment from anti-abortion activists. I'm glad to say that bill is currently being considered by the Oireachtas Health Committee, but really it needs to get a move on because and we saw another case of it in the north as well. It's just not acceptable. Abortion is legal in this country and women who go to access their health care should not have to be intimidated in that way, nor indeed should the medical staff who work in these places. Now, RTE's Storyland was devised to develop and showcase great local drama and to create opportunities for new talent to pitch, develop and produce drama for our screens. It has been an invaluable springboard for Irish writing, directing, producing and acting talent throughout the island of Ireland. And the short Storyland dramas will broadcast on RTE2 as well as RTE Player, providing a wider platform for new talent and increased funding for these original Irish drama commissions. Storyland comes to RTE Television for the first time with three new dramas airing on RTE2 at 9.30pm on the the next three Thursdays and the first one is starting tonight. There was a huge number of applications for Storyland with RTE working with Screen Ireland in partnership to grow the Irish drama sector and all three of the selected dramas were written 
by women. So, of course, we thought we'd ask those women to come on and tell us about their work. They are Sinead Colopy, a screenwriter originally from Limerick, currently living in County Clare with her husband and three children. She has an 18 year career in child protection services, working at the coalface of some of Ireland's most impoverished and underserved communities, and her writings heavily influenced by the people she worked with. She's a degree in history and politics. Her passion lies in exploring social justice themes, stories that examine the distribution of power and that leave audience asking questions and spark public debate. Rena Greer is an award-winning writer, director and producer from Dublin. She's based it between Ireland and Germany. She emigrated to Berlin during the pandemic, partly because she and her partner, musician Richie Jago, felt like Germany is a good place for artists and creatives. And finally, Eva O'Connor is an actor from County Clare. As a teenager, she was more interested in dance, but then Appearing in her first play in Dublin Fringe Festival, she found herself wondering whether plays excited her more than dancing, and that turned out to be the case. She wrote her first one-woman show when she was 19, and she's written several more since then. And she is the woman who has the first film up, which is tonight, called Mustard. And I began by asking Eva and the other women about their stories being chosen by RTE for Storyland and whether it meant something special that the three winning stories were by women. Yeah, it's always a uh, blessed art that amongst women. It's really cool to see three women in the in the three final projects. Um, I'm sure they didn't do it on purpose, but I guess hopefully our projects were the strongest. And I think they also did a really good job of choosing three really different projects. So each of ours are very like distinctive from each other. But I think when you're in when you're in something like this with a bunch of women, there's always such a nice feeling of solidarity. Like everyone's retweeting, everyone's like, woo! And there is that kind of like added level of support when it's women, I think. Cool. Sinead, you're nodding away there. Yeah, completely. And I think it's important to know that it was a blind read. You know what I mean? Like it was completely, it wasn't that RTE chose three women, RTE chose the three projects that spoke to them. And it just happened to be three women. Um, So... I think I think it's really important to state that that it is an equal playing field. It was an open call. It, you know, you didn't have to have an agent. You didn't have to have like a big back catalogue. All you had to have was a real passionate story that you wanted to bring there. And there was such a huge abundance of people that were so excited by this. But the fact that it, it just was three women that got into the last three. I must say I did do a little bit of a dance <laughs> because I did start to say, you know, Manana here and this is our time you know we are female Irish writers that want to write for screen you know a lot of us you see a lot of female Irish writers screenwriters in particular who've gone to the UK or you know who have left these shores um, and to see our national broadcaster kind of back us and encourage us to write stories for Irish television was um, was just really inspiring and really encouraging for me. That's great and Rianok just your thoughts on it too I mean I think it's very important to say the cream rose to the top it was blind it was the best people for the job not anything else but still it is that lovely feeling that Eva said of solidarity. Exactly yeah and I think it is um, you know it's it's really quite amazing to kind of you know to have gotten to a place where you can actually make it having um, you know it being an open call and there being so many amazing projects that um, that were that were included in it and that, you know, when we had the eight shortlist, those projects and that talent was a really great snapshot of uh, the range of talent that is working in Ireland right now and the the different types of voices. And, you know, I think it is purely chance that the final three projects are written by women. Um, and even within that shows the range within 
women's voices and what kind of stories we each like to tell and what kind of tastes we have. We're not this, uh, you know, single entity of women's stories. We've got, you know, we're, we're genre. We've got a lot of very different edges to us as well. That's really well put. I think that's very important. So on that note, I'm going to get you all to tell me about your dramas. And Eva, I'm going to start with you first because yours is on tonight and the day that this episode will go out and it's called Mustard and it explores themes that you've explored in your work before. So tell us a bit about it. Yeah, it's based on a play that I wrote and I'm still touring about a girl who uh, she's kind of a bit lost in her life and she falls madly in love with a lad and uh, I suppose it's like the whirlwind romance that she kind of thinks is going to solve all her problems and she kind of has this dark secret that she's addicted to mustard so she's addicted to putting mustard all over her body and eating mustard and as her relationship starts to break down her mustardy demons kind of start to creep back into her life and so it's kind of a story about recovery and redemption and revenge and it's quite hopeful as well. And I suppose, yeah, the mustard can can kind of, people are always like, what does the mustard mean? And the mustard, I suppose, can can mean whatever you want it to mean. It will mean different things for different people. But um, yeah, it's very kind of visual, visceral, um, slightly bizarre in places, hopefully funny as well, piece. So yeah, I mean, it was the play itself. I suppose you can do a lot. You can do a lot on stage in, in terms of, you know, putting your, bringing your weird ideas to life. So I was really delighted that they already kind of took a punt on the play for a screen. So it's it's directed by Hildegard Ryan, who also um, directed the play. And we work um, quite closely together a lot. So Hildy was very much able to realise our kind of very strange mustardy uh, vision on, on screen. So, yeah, I'm very excited for it. Eva, I have to ask you a very important question. What kind of mustard? English mustard. Right. Jesus. So the lad... The lad <laughs> The lad in it is English, and so that's a lot about their dynamics. You know, she's dating this English guy, okay. and it's kind of like in the play, it's like a little bit like comment on like you know colonialism and like how we like defer to English men, and yeah. So it's it's not not Dijon. Yeah, I mean, I that's love how sequel, it sounds though. like there's quite a there's quite a yeah. <laughs> or American mustard indeed. I was thinking that might be a bit more easy to stomach. Like the English is quite hardcore. Oh yeah, it's very like when you put it on your skin, it like it literally burns and it makes yeah. your eyes stream. And but it, on the one hand, it's quite a an earthy sort of real authentic story. That, but there's this surreal element where you're using the mustard to kind of give another yeah. message. And I think that sort of helps to lift the story a bit as well. And that, that was kind of the case for the play as well. It kind of gives people a way into something that could otherwise be quite dark. Um, it kind of adds this other level um of kind of intrigue and um. Yeah, I suppose I I really like the kind of performance arty element of it as well. And actually, yeah, when I've I've written, as you know, by, about eating disorders and mental health and all that stuff before. And um, when I had an eating disorder, I was really obsessed with mustard on everything because it was like low, low calories, but strong flavor. And I found out afterwards that's really normal, apparently, for people with eating disorders, like they like love hot sauce and they love ketchup and um. So for me, that was kind of where it came from. But for other people, it could kind of represent anything you wanted to. And it's funny, Eva, because when I read up about yours, the first thing that I thought of as mustard was that it was used as a punishment years ago that you get a tip of mustard on your tongue. That, you know, parents would have, you know, used mustard because of the sting that if you were naughty, you said something dirty, I'll put mustard in your mouth. Or, you know, it's like clean your mouth out with soap oh, kind man, of idea. I never heard that. I never heard yeah. that amazing. either. So mustard, because now I'm not, it never happened to me. Just yeah. it didn't happen to me. But that's what I thought. It was like a punishment. Because like to me, mustard is so, like I just 
get the cringe yeah. whenever I smell it. So the thought of covering yourself with mustard or even eating mustard make me actually feel viscerally unwell. And I thought, oh, God, she's self-punishing herself with the mustard. That, and it's funny how that's how I picked it up yes. and how everybody would pick it up totally differently. That's so interesting. I never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. That, that's great. Well, now you're on a roll there. What's your one about then? Sinead, yeah, yeah sorry, because yeah. again, what I think, what we, coming back to what you were saying, what we were saying earlier, they're all so different in themes and yeah. in the, you know, in, in, in everything. So, so tell us about your one. Yeah, mine is every five miles and it's sort of the last one that's going to be aired on the 3rd of November. And um, I guess mine is very much um, a kind of a state of the nation piece, kind of a social commentary piece. It sort of links in with kind of genres like Ken Loach, kind of I, Daniel Blake, which is kind of asking the audience to look at a topic of human trafficking, which is happening in Ireland, which is an issue that's really close to my heart. Um, and it follows a young boy called David who has been trafficked into Ireland to work in car washes. Um, and it's the relationship that develops between himself and Saoirse, who's the young girl who works in the petrol station shop. And, you know, he's kind of hidden in plain sight. He's just working away at a car wash and she's seeing him for sort of like for the first time. And little things are starting to tweak with her that it doesn't look right but she's not quite sure. So she thinks he's just, you know, an, um, you know, a low paid worker. And that's why he's physically conditions aren't great. But as she watches closer and closer, she starts to see that something's wrong. Um, but it's really a kind of a call out to all of us that if you see something, don't turn the blind eye. And Saoirse does have to make that decision then between self-sacrifice. So protecting herself from the threat that this gang will personally, you know, put on her if she speaks out or going the extra mile to help this boy who's obviously in a really dangerous position. Um, and she does end up choosing herself because, you know, she, she's being threatened, she's being intimidated. And I, I wanted the audience to kind of empathize with her and understand why she did that. I didn't want them to villainize her because that's probably what most of us would do in that position. But by doing so, this boy ends up being put into a really, really dangerous position. And, um, yeah, so it's really a story about the outsiders who are living on the fringes of our society who don't have a voice, who I really want to highlight to all of us that they are living amongst us. Because um, I think the Guardi have said that people are just not aware that approximately every five miles in this country is a person who's been trafficked. And you said it's a subject close to your heart. So you obviously have done a lot of work on this. And it's something I think we don't think about and we're not aware of as much as we should be. Yeah, and I think, you know, there has been definitely a rise of... Um, of media coverage of sex trafficking, um, you know, and, and women and Ruhama is a great organization that highlights that. But my story is about labor trafficking and labor exploitation. Um, and it probably doesn't get the headlines that it deserves. Um, and, you know, there have been me recent media reports that Ireland is a haven for trafficking. Um, there's never been um, a conviction for labor exploitation in this country, which I find, given our history of Magdalene laundries and how we very you know, as a society turned a blind eye to the fallen women, why do we turn a blind eye to victims of trafficking in our country? Um, and I had come across in the line of my work, I worked for the health service 15 years ago with a young lad who I now know was a victim of trafficking. But at the time, I didn't know he worked in a car wash. Um, and I never, I didn't push the issue as much as I probably should have, because at the time, it was in my 20s, I didn't really know. I thought he was just a poor kid working in really bad conditions. Um, and I always felt really guilty because they shut that car wash down a week later and he disappeared. Uh, and I never forgot him. And years and years later, when I learned about human trafficking, I made a promise that one day I, I did you wrong back then, but I'll, I'll tell your story. Well, so it really does come from personal experience. It's it's a story that you've 
you've carried and obviously meant a lot to you and you weren't able to do anything in the instant. But but by writing this, you're going to expose it to a lot of people who maybe haven't thought of it before. Yeah, yeah, that's the hope. And I think, you know, people say, why didn't I write, you know, a newspaper article or why didn't I, you know, turn it into a book? Why screen? And I like, I work in child and family agency, you know, people I work with, some people don't read. Some people never pick up books. They won't pick up newspapers, but everybody will watch something on a screen. And it's just the universality of being able to get a story across on a, in a drama, I think, can reach a broader audience for me than than books or, or newspapers maybe can. So that's why it was so important to get it on the national broadcaster. And that one's on November 3rd. And Rena, it's coming to you again. Very different. A who done it? Baylor exactly, Hall. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it's it's a it's kind of like a darkly comic uh, murder mystery in, you know, hopefully the same vein of something like Knives Out um, about a family who are a meat empire dynasty. They're, the patriarch is a meat baron who's made his fortune from uh, the Irish meat industry and the farming industry. So he his his kids and his family are kind of circling like vultures and trying to see what they can pick off from him and if they can oust, oust him from the board. So he kind of plays this little trick to see what would happen. And it, um, it, it sets about a chain of events that leads to his murder. But we have a cast of characters that all have a particular reason to kill him. There's uh, his daughter who he appears to pass over for the company, his idiot heir apparent son, his uh, vegan activist son, who's sort of the black sheep of the family, um, his <laughs> wife, who's sort of like the brand, the kind of uh, matriarchal kind of image of the whole company, um, and the long lost daughter who comes back to reconnect with him as well. So there's a lot of, you know, finger pointing and blaming. Um, and of course, his, his, uh, his, um, his his mistress who he who's also the cook and the on-hand slaughterer of the cows that live on the farm as well so it's it's kind of meaty is it fair to say sort of irish succession vibes there's definitely succession yeah. vibes like i'm not going to lie i <laughs> i love that show and i love i i there have been a lot of shows as well circling around lineage and you know what it what what your birthright actually means and what your what you deserve as a person and especially in a, in families where there are money and I'm very fascinated by Irish families with money and um, I was just about to say I feel like we haven't well. had the Irish version of that yeah. like and That's I think so we specific. we think of ourselves as like oh you know we don't we don't have the same class oh, system as we, we do in the so UK yeah yeah like we kind of especially when it comes to land land for us means so much it's so it's so different to what it means in the UK because we didn't have it for centuries so I think you know when when you have these families that are sort of like you know um even the kind of location we shot in is a very kind of a old gentry kind of place as well it's um you know it's it, it means a lot more and it's embedded in the identity of who we are um, and when it comes to family and who gets what portion of land or who gets what from the father, you know, it, it's interesting to see where love and genuine affection are blinded by the whole need for land and money and yeah, uh, yeah and, and kind of that birthright thing. 
And um, Sinead and Eva like talked about they're bringing their own personal experiences into it. So what what is your own kind of personal <laughs> interest in, as you say, people with lots oh, of money? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, some, I mean, maybe the meat eating. Like I, some days I'm a <laughs> vegan and some days I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I eat meat a lot. So it's, it's, I don't know. There's this kind of duality there of like, are the, you know, the, the the whole idea of the farming industry definitely is sort of a fitting backdrop to, you know, but definitely I think it, there's a um, a fascination that I have with um, more wealthier families and dynasty families who, um, you know, have all these stories and there's so many interesting kind of um, dynamics at play. So I don't know if that's that's probably close <laughs> it can be. To that's fair enough. A personal no, I mean, story. I, and I think there's it's such a rich theme. I think the, the meat and vegan, especially now with the climate and everything. So it's a thing that a lot of people are wrestling with. Um, exactly. In terms of your background, how did you end up doing this? Because I think people have very circuitous routes to writing, and I'm sure you do a few other yeah, things. Yeah. So what's your own background in in the arts and elsewhere? Um, well, I suppose for, for years, I actually was a development executive for a company in Dublin called Samson Films. So I helped a lot of other filmmakers and directors and writers um, script edit their films, help get them funded uh, while making my own stuff as well on the side. So I made a short film uh, called Break Us, which has Danielle Galligan from uh, Every Five Miles, who's an amazing performer. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I just love her so much. And... Um, I made another film called Don't Go Where I Can't Find You. And that went to uh, South by Southwest earlier this year, among the kind of, I think we're probably 20 plus festivals internationally now at this point as well. Um, And yeah, I think it is, you know, I suppose that writing, directing route is so um, specific, a kind of a career path. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it's so fascinating as well, because I think the three of us probably have very different backgrounds in terms of what our journeys have been to create something for the screen. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Going back to you, Sinead, because you are we're in a very different industry. This is not your <laughs> world, really. So tell us about that. Yeah, I went the unconventional route. And anybody that knows me, you're not surprised <laughs> that I chose the unconventional route. It just seems to be the story of my life. No, I mean, I, I 
I only started screenwriting about three and a half years ago. Um, up to that point, I spent like 20 years working in community and family services across Ireland with the health boards and HSE and, and now I'm with Tesla in County Clare. And I guess for me, it was sort of a coming of age for me. Um, I was approaching 40. I have three very young children. And I kind of felt that for me at that stage of my life, I was kind of losing myself a little bit. I was sort of like, you know, I'm mammy, I'm a worker, I'm wife, I'm the daughter, but who, who, who is me? Like, what, what do I ever do for myself? Because um, I always felt that I was kind of serving because my job was quite stressful because, you know, child protection workers can be very stressful. So I was always kind of giving to others. And I think women, we tend to be the nurturers. We do tend, even in our family dynamic, we tend to give a lot, but we sort of don't carve out a time for ourselves. So I was approaching 40 and uh, I don't know, midlife crisis, call it what you want, but I suddenly decided... Um, I was really good at writing in secondary school and uh, I had an inspirational teacher in Limerick. I went to a, a city centre school in Limerick and um, she, I pulled out a, just a, a block of essays I wrote for her when I was 17. And she, like the comments on the essays was, you're gifted, you can create worlds, you know, please keep writing, never stop, never stop and uh, keep going. Even, you know, I know you feel that, you know, maybe there isn't a space for you, but there is. And I read these essays that my teacher, I must give a call out, Miss Grant, Colette Grant. <laughs> Yay, Miss um, Grant, we love you. <laughs> hey, Miss Grant, we love you. Um, and yeah, I just said, God, I think if somebody said I could write once, I wonder, can I still do it? Even though I'm old now, I'm nearly 40. So I said, I'm going to just learn, just learn myself. And I started like reading books about it and reading scripts and from BBC Writers Rooms, entering into different writing schemes. I knew nobody in the industry. You wasn't a producer, wasn't an actor, and you absolutely nobody. And everybody laughed at me. They were like, that is such a niche, closed industry. You have to have connections or you get nowhere. And um, I'm very stubborn by nature anyway. Yeah. So I said, you tell me I can't do it. I'm going to do it now. <laughs> so I kept going. And um, yeah, I just think Ireland is just such a great place to to break into. I mean, if, if I was in the UK, this wouldn't have happened. I believe that 100%. Yeah. So did you write this and send it off? And is this your first... Thing, oh, no, I no, no, I've, I've been writing. So I I'd made a short film called Paddy um, and that had done quite well. So that was sort of like my first short. And then I got another short made by BBC Writers Rooms during lockdown called Salvation Calling, which um, Peter McElhenney was in from Granddad from Derry Girls. So that was like it was similar to uh, Storyland where there was an open call. There was like 7000 submissions. It was lockdown. Wow. Everybody was going crazy. And they made it 10. And oh, I was, my God. That's incredible. Yeah, one of the 10. I remember I wrote it in the middle of the night because like, my writing times are nine to two in the morning because of all the kids and, and school and work and stuff. So I wrote it in exhaustion and sent it in, thought nothing of it. They made it. And then I got to write on Smother, which is the great oh, yeah. series. But Smother, so I wrote an episode of Smother, which is going to be aired in February or January. And then I'm writing on Hidden Assets as well in a writer's room. So every five miles has kind of come at the end of all of that. But it was a story I had for 15 years. like. But it was just the right time. And every five miles was turned down by, uh, I won't name the scheme, but it was another short film scheme that passed on it. And it's just a message to anybody that gets rejected. I just said, no way. You just don't see what I see. And this is going to go further. And you will regret passing on this. It was just a little bit of a thing in me. And I kept pushing it. And... No, no, no. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely true, though, isn't it? It's I like, absolutely yeah. love there. that story. I'm just wondering where Miss Grant is now. Have you told her how you're getting on? I don't know where Miss Grant is. I don't know if she's still even teaching. It was a, a fabulous secondary school in Limerick called Art School. Where, and 
what I loved about that school was that it was in a what we call a desh area, which is the yeah. designated disadvantaged school. And, you know, we had girls coming to that school from all different communities, all different backgrounds. And this teacher, she just doesn't matter what background you are, whether you found reading really hard, she just gave you this passion and she just really cared about the girls. And um, yeah, you know, there's I think teachers really hold so much power over young people and it might be 20, 30 years later, but you never forget them. I think that's so true. And I'm just going to put a shout out, Miss Grant, if you are listening or indeed if anyone knows Miss Grant, the women's podcast at irishtimes.com, we need to reunite you with Sinead. Um, <laughs> Eva, does does the kind of graft and the kind of determination that Sinead has spoken about there resonate with you? Because you've been writing for a bit longer, but you've kind of everything you've had, you've really gone for, you've had to take, you've had rejection, you've had to Oh yeah, you know, no, I it. think the rejection message is so important and it's really good. It's really demystifying to hear people talk about it as well. Like I remember hearing Sharon Horgan years ago saying that like something she had made, I can't remember what it was, had taken like eight years or 10 years or you always hear stories of people who like I remember me and Hildegard who directed Mustard were like at a we were at like a Christmas party at our writing agency and we were talking to some like successful TV writer and he was like oh yeah like if you're lucky you'll get two things made a decade and we were like we were like haha Stephen that sounds like a terrible statistics you're obviously not working hard enough and then I was like as time goes on I'm like oh my god he's right like optimistically you get two things made a decade so you kind of have to manage your expectations but at the same time remain very determined and I think like like what's what's not for one scheme or company or channel might be what someone else is is looking for it like you know kind of straight off the bat so yeah I think I think as well like I've I've come up really through theatre and I've written for TV as well and me and Hildy do more TV stuff in the UK probably than we do in Ireland but definitely I think in theatre there's a certain kind of graft that you just you work and everything you know any kind of any success that we've had has been very much through really just through hard work and I think that's a really good um you kind of, I suppose if you come up through theatre, you know, nothing's handed to you on a plate. There's very little money. Like you do everything on a shoestring. And I think that's it. I think from a work ethic point of view, that's really kind of stood to me because, um, yeah, I think, I think also you can, in theatre, you, you can sort of see things happen before your eyes in a way. TV can, you can take, things can kind of languish in development or, you know, be very, you kind of are waiting on a lot of people to give you the yes or, you might end up getting a project really far and then someone will move. Like if you're working with a commissioner, they'd be like, oh, surprise, I'm actually leaving BBC and I'm going to Channel 4 and your project is now in the bin. You're like, oh. <laughs> so I think it definitely like when you, I think theatre has also taught me kind of the, the power of your own agency and your own kind of energy. And I think then you can sort of if you can transfer that energy over to TV, then it kind of helps you keep going. And when you got, you all, I presume you all got chosen at the same time and then you all went into production at the same time. Is that how it worked? Were you kind of in touch with each other or was it very separate? That's a good question, actually. I think we were kind of, I don't, I I think we were too busy getting it, um, getting it going to actually touch base with each other because it wasn't until we kind of came out of the, um, the uh the production fog that we were like how are you guys doing how are you guys <laughs> yeah and I think we were all slightly different in our in our when we went into production we started at slightly different times because there was timing issues and there was obviously like uh trying to get crew was a huge huge issue for me trying to get the location of the petrol station nearly you know was mentally exhausting 
to find a petrol station that was shut down for a week. It was just, I was like, oh yeah, any petrol station, throw them a couple of grand. No, petrol stations don't want to give up their businesses for a week, understandably. But I think we all had different roles in our production as well. So like Renuk was director, Eva acted in it. Um, I didn't, I was certainly never going to act, <laughs> but I wasn't, I'm too scared to direct yet, but hopefully down the line, but I was in on set as a deck producer. So I, so we were all kind of had different roles in our productions as well, which I think is really interesting. So we weren't just a case of, I remember years ago when I started out, I was told by a male producer at the time was, you're just a writer. You give me the script. You're just, don't ever forget your role in this. You are just the writer. We take the script and you have no other hands in it. Now go away and you'll see it on a screen when it's done. And I always said, I will never, ever, ever be put in that position again as just the writer. So that's why I was exec producer. And it was lovely that we all had our hands very much in the development process from start to finish. And I think that was really important. Hmm. And uh, Renuk, you directed. So was that you've done that before or was it did it feel more special because it was this particular project? Um, I suppose it, it, it's kind of it, the, you know, the last few projects I have written and directed myself um, like my shorts. So it kind of, it felt like a natural progression to kind of, to keep it that way as well. Um, and, you know, to, to have Deirdre Levins, who was uh, my producer, um, was such a strong backbone to that and really had, um, you know, she was really in my corner with, you know, what I wanted to do with this script and what we what we wanted to achieve with that scale and was really lucky with that incredible cast, that really amazing ensemble cast that we had as well. So I think, it, you know, it, it was the biggest thing that I had directed to this point. So it it felt like such a, a big bite to take as well that, um, yeah, it, it was new territory as a director, but I think we had the best possible team and cast and crew uh, in your corner, which makes it a hell of a lot more easier. <laughs> And did you have any issues with locations? Where did you set this beef baron or meat baron guy? Uh, well, we, we wanted to look for a really big um, house. And, you know, the, lucky there's really beautiful houses out there, which can be difficult in um, in wedding season during the summer. But um, we were able to shoot in a private residence. Um, so, yeah, we were, we, we were quite lucky with the place that we found. Excellent. Very good. And Eva, what about you? You worked with a long term uh, collaborator, so that was obviously great, but had different challenges doing it for the screen rather than theatre. Yeah, I think I think actually adapting the story was fairly straightforward because I knew the play inside out and I had just come back from Edinburgh. So I just done like 30 shows in a row. So I was like, you know, I was talking to one of my friends before. I was like, oh, God, I feel so anxious. And she was like, well, if you don't know the story now, you never will. Um, so I think from a character point of view, I felt very solid and me and Hildy had yeah, I think like Rena was saying, like having someone who understands your vision and um, is in your corner, feeling like you have a good team around you, then then you feel like you can kind of, we were all under loads of time pressure and like, you know, our, our budget was limited and it was kind of a scramble to get everything finished and caught and edited and all that stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, like we were saying, we all sort of emerged from this like black hole to be like, oh, like find each other on Twitter and be like, yay, it's coming <laughs> out. Um, but yeah, I think it was like, I I feel like by the time we got into filming, I was just like focusing on on playing playing the character of Eilish, and um, I think 
had it been a different director I would have been very anxious I probably would have been like looking over their shoulder being like are they doing justice to my story <laughs> but because it was Hildy I was able to be okay great she knows exactly what's going on and I think she's done she's it, visually I think it looks amazing and she's done a really amazing job brilliant um I presume you're all working on other things now are you Sinead mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'm still I'm in the writer's room as I said with Hidden Assets and Peter McKenna and um Saffron Moon Productions so kind of in draft two of my episode there that's going to be shot in Limerick and Clare in February so I'm up to my neck with that and also obviously you know with these all of these projects I don't know about the girls but my project was very much a proof of concept for a kind of a longer form story um so you know mine in my head is a four-parter so I'm working on you know bringing our my character who we see at the end and kind of following him to his final destination where he ends up. So um, I'm working on that and also a book adaptation with a company in America for Irish screen um, and also a period piece set in West in Galway in 1880s <laughs> and um, a crime drama as well. Oh as my feature. God. And what about there in stages things on the go? Yeah. Yeah. How is... but, but they're in stages. And I think this is the thing, when, people, when you say people how much you're working on, they all think that they're going to end up on screen. Yeah. No, no, yeah. no. They're in development. That's it, exactly. You know, <laughs> the chances of any of those ever hitting a screen is, you know, as Eva says, you know, two in a decade and yeah. maybe I've had my two. But but it's I always feel I have to have numerous different things. You, you've got to work on numerous different things because if you rely on one, you know, you have to have more things in your arsenal. You also and never know what's going to go. You know, you never, things that yeah. you think are dead end up get re- getting resurrected. Yeah. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, yeah. your day job then in Tusla still carries on too. Yeah, I don't know how that's worked. I don't know how that that's going to work long term because I suppose, you know, writing, it's, it's, you know, when you're used to your paycheck, you've got three kids and a mortgage and, you know, you're just this fear of you've been a public servant worker all your life and it's like, oh, you know, it's pensionable permanent job and you know but you have to sort of jump off and take a risk and I'm thinking next year I'm going to have to kind of physically for my own health and sanity I'm really going to have to kind of choose and I'm going to have to you know hopefully get um get a break for a year and just write full time and that's the that's the dream and the hope anyway amazing Rena what about you have you got a few irons in the fire this, probably not as many as Sinead this that's is it. I, mean, like, I was actually thinking like yeah that sounds about right you know because um even before I hopped on the call here I was working on a script that I finished yesterday and I was like I'm writing it and I, I you know feeling like this is great. I could totally do this. This is amazing. And reading it back today and going, oh my holy God, this is awful. Um, <laughs> I hate that. And it's one of like, I think five projects like that. It's a, I have a siege thriller feature film that um, that I'm writing uh, for Screen Ireland uh, with Claire McKay, producer. I've got um, another kind of body horror um, feature film that I'm writing as well, almost at the same time. Um, I have a TV show that I've been writing with Nadia Ford called The Lido with development for RTE. Um, and it might be another crime drama between um, a German-UK potential co-production as well. And there's another there's another thing looming on the horizon. So I guess it's, you know, to, to that effect, I think it is, yeah, like working in development for years really does teach you that, you know, all these projects that you loved and helped develop with amazing talent are all worthy of being brought to the screen but it is such a subjective uh industry where you have to things have to align perfectly at the same time so what you want to do is throw everything you got at the wall and see what sticks and it's kind of to that effect you kind of you know 
driven, demented by one day you think you're great, one day you think you're, you know, like, I, you should, tr you know, try a different field. But, you know, I think it's it's all part of the madness and you kind of have to, you kind of have to love it at the at the heart of it um, because it is, yeah, because <laughs> you've always got probably about five or seven things going on at the same time. Eva, what are you throwing at the wall? Um, I got mustard. Yeah, mustard. Mustard <laughs> continues. Um, I just found out I'm going to go to Australia with mustard Great. to play. So that'll be nice um winter holiday, working holiday. And um yeah, I'm writing a new play for the Glass Mass Theatre, which is Rex Ryan's Theatre, which is on Dawson Street. And yeah, me and Hildy have a few things in development, mostly in the UK. So we're waiting on kind of news on one particular project. Nothing that I would that I would say this is going to go so that happened, but we've kind of over the last year we've been developing like four or five ideas and they're all kind of at that nice stage where we've done everything we can on the idea. So now they're out with like commissioners or channels. So you kind of just sit and wait. And then if you get a, a whole rake of rejections, then you go back to the drawing board. Otherwise we might be working on something exciting next year. And Hildy's having a baby, so now we're gonna we're gonna figure out how that's gonna work. Baby in the rehearsal room. Um, baby at the Give me a call. yeah exactly I was just about to say we get a few tips from Sinead and listen um, before you go I have to ask you all about Bad Sisters because I have just loved it so much and what a great thing that it's made by an Irish woman and mm -hmm. it really it just it's captured people's imaginations were you all fans yes yeah massive absolutely loved hate watching JP oh. so much like Face bangers. I'm, I'm almost sorry villain. he's dead because, like, I can't believe we're never going to get to, you know, see him again. I hate him so much, though. I would like to think yeah. there's a second season where he comes back to haunt them and we get to <laughs> yeah. see a lot that way. <laughs> the ghost you of can JP. write the second season, Rena. Oh <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Sharon Horgan, give me a call. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of people saying, Sharon Horgan, give me a call at the moment. Oh, I'd say she's hardly wants to answer the phone. I'd say, Sharon Horgan. <laughs> But listen, I'm just absolutely delighted for the three of you. Eva, Eva yours is on tonight and then Renuk, yours is next Thursday and Sinead, you're the final Thursday and I just would urge everyone to watch them and I can't wait to see how many of those things that you throw at the wall land. I'm sure like, I'm sure there's going to be more than two a decade with you three. You just seem like that, those kind yeah, of people. fingers crossed we have better odds. <laughs> but thank you all very much for joining me, Eva, Renuk and Sinead. Thanks a lot. Best of luck. Thanks a million, Roisin. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Roisin. That's all we have time for. You can watch Mustard by Eva O'Connor this evening on RTE 2 at 9.30 or on The Player and the other dramas will be up on the next two Thursdays. Get in touch with us, especially if you are that amazing teacher, Miss Grant, on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. We're on social at IT Women's Podcast. That's it from me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.